The following is an encore presentation of Voices of Experience from May 18th of 2021. And also, don't forget, Voices of Experience will be expanding in an hour beginning in October. The show will broadcast on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW 1150 at 3 p.m. on Wednesdays, and then repeated on Kixie AM 880 on Sundays at 11 a.m. Enjoy the show. And I realized that whales, like humans, were doing things differently. They had their own culture within genetically identical species. The whole country really came together in those days and, and um, mobilized for the war effort. And people were, uh, uh, you know, saving gum wrappers. And... That's Brian Scarry and Stuart Elway. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. The latest Crosscut Elway poll is out, and pollster Stuart Elway will be with us to talk about the results. The poll's major focus is how Washingtonians are viewing the state's response to the pandemic. You will probably find it hard to believe this, but the response is vastly different depending on your political affiliation. Also, Could the next partisan divide be shaking hands? Which, again, people have vastly different views depending on your political affiliation. Crazy times. But first, award-winning photographer Brian Scarry praised worldwide for his aesthetic sense for telling stories that not only celebrate the mysteries of the sea, but help bring attention to numerous issues that endanger our oceans. Brian recently completed a book called Secrets of the Whales. It's been made into a four-part Disney series directed by James Cameron and narrated by Sigourney Weaver. His work is also featured in National Geographic's May edition. Just a quick observation about what is becoming a controversy about COVID and the vaccine. I'm very supportive of what the Tacoma Rainiers and the Seattle Mariners have done by creating sections that will allow only people who have been vaccinated to sit in. Now, of course, there has been the predictable outcry by the anti-vaxxers that this is discrimination. I chose to get fully vaccinated. I think the people who don't get vaccinated are making a huge mistake, but that's my opinion. I also think, from what the experts are saying, that before we can truly open up, 70% of the people at least have to have the first shot. So basically, I have the right to increase my odds of not getting COVID or the variant by not circulating or being near people who choose not to be vaccinated. Go Rainiers, go Mariners. Back with Brian Scarry in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Talking about whales and the study of them, and you've been on a three-year odyssey about whales. What do you know or what do you think we all know about whales that we didn't know before in this whole National Geographic rollout? What are we going to find out? 
Mm. Well, it's really an important question and, and gets right at the essence of, of this project that I created uh, called Secrets of the Whales. You know, my last big whale story for National Geographic was published in 2008. And since that time, I was sort of interested in, in doing a multi-species story about whales. But the challenge for me was, what was the narrative going to be? How would I connect the dots between multiple species? So I was reading a lot of scientific publications and talking to researchers and attending conferences. And I noticed this, this theme of culture, of whale culture, emerging in some of the latest and greatest science. And I drilled down a little deeper on that, and I realized that whales, like humans, were doing things differently. They had their own culture within genetically identical species. So I pitched it to the magazine and then to TV and then to the book division and, and sort of all three projects simultaneously were greenlit and I spent three years. And I think what, what I learned based on the research and then those three years in the field and that hopefully audiences and readers will come away with is that these animals do have sophisticated societies in the sea that many ways mirror human culture. They are not the same as us, but they are very much like us. You know, they um, do things differently. Uh, <clears throat> one of the whale biologists that I worked with throughout this project, Dr. Shane Garrow, he describes the difference between behavior and culture like this. He says, behavior is what we do. Culture is how we do it. So, for example, most humans eat food with utensils. That is behavior. But whether you use chopsticks or knives and forks is culture. Turns out whales are doing the same thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're not eating with utensils, but they might have a preference for certain foods. So the orca that live in New Zealand like to eat stingrays, and the ones that live in Patagonia, Argentina, like to eat seal pups. And those families have figured out a strategy to predate on their preferred ethnic food, and they're the only ones in the world that are doing that. Other whales are isolating by dialect. They have languages, and they don't intermingle with other genetically identical whales that are doing that. And whales have singing competitions, and they do all these things that in many ways are like humans. That's phenomenal. It really is. Um, and, it, you know, that so many whale families, as you say, are just as diverse as, let's say, human beings. That's, that's really yeah. fascinating. Uh, tell us more about uh, the special coming up and about your book and, and you know, what will we hmm. find out again and continuing with this dialogue about whales? Well, as, as a storyteller, a uh, visual storyteller especially, you know, this was the most ambitious project of my career. And as a storyteller, of course, you want to amplify it in as many platforms as possible. And the beauty of National Geographic and Disney is that, that they have those available, but you may not always get all of them. But in this case, it really was embraced at every level. So it started at the magazine level where it got approved as a story. And a great Seattle uh, natural history and science writer, Craig Welsh, is the writer of, uh, of the story. So he instantly understood uh, the theme and, and did a brilliant job of reporting on this. And again, the writing and the pictures kind of do two different things. The reader comes away with a more complete story by, by reading the text and looking at the pictures. The TV series, you know, that also grew organically. I, I proposed it to the executives at the National Geographic Channel. They scaled it up. I originally thought maybe, you know, a one-hour documentary, but they said, no, no, let's make it four one-hour documentaries. And then Disney loved what we were doing, so they made it original content that will begin streaming on Earth Day 
uh, on Disney Plus, and then James Cameron, who I had known for for years, but we had never worked together. He, of course, is a National Geographic explorer, and he became interested in it. So he got the role of executive producer, and of course, he brings a unique set of skills to the table as a master storyteller and a pioneering ocean explorer. And then we got Sigourney Weaver to do the the narration. So, uh, and then the book, of course, uh, which uh, I just learned today has already sold out in the first printing. It just came out a few days ago, and it's already uh, going back to a second printing. So I guess people are interested in the subject matter. But, you know, each of those platforms, I think, do different things. So the motion picture documentary uh, will bring readers in in motion. We can see, you know, an orca mom swimming towards me underwater with a stingray in her mouth and then dropping it in front of me as if to offer me food and then, you know, waiting for me to eat the stingray. And then when I don't do it, she, she picks it up and shares it with her family. You know, we see uh, an orca mom carrying her dead baby in the Norwegian Arctic. We see this from a drone perspective above. But in the book, you see a still frame. So, you know, you can, you can sit with the book and a cup of tea or coffee and, and sort of get lost in, in the in still frames. Or you can watch the series on Disney Plus and, and see something a little bit different. So each of them do different things. And then, of course, the magazine story, a 40-page cover story in the May issue. Wow, so ambitious. It sounds fantastic. You know, you mentioned the uh, orca carrying her baby. We had a very similar, if not exact, circumstance here in Puget Sound a couple years ago. And it was uh, very emotional. It was very, uh, it captured the attention, not only here, I know worldwide. That's right. Yeah, I think, you know, when we see those things, we, we can't help but realize that that this is grief. I mean, that these animals are exhibiting deep grief. This family of orca moving very purposely through the fjord. And uh, with the scientists who had a drone in the sky, they said, I think, you know, it looks like a, a dead calf. So I was able to get in the water and see this very emotional scene, as you described in, in, in the Pacific Northwest. Same thing. And I was able to build uh, and design cameras to capture beluga whale behavior that had never been seen before in the, in the Canadian Arctic, in, in this shallow water estuary where belugas migrate. It's their summer resort. And in less than a meter of water, they're rubbing on the gravel bottom like a natural loofah to exfoliate their skins. And they're having babies, you know, first time pictures of baby belugas. I, I posted one on my Instagram feed today of one of those photos. Or gameplay where they're picking up little stones and swimming around with them and passing them to one another. I mean, you know, joy and grief. What are the uh, species that are most endangered right now? Well, the most endangered species of whale on the planet is a a whale that lives very close to my home. I I live on the coast of Maine here, and uh, that would be the North Atlantic right whale. You know, the story of right whales is that about a million years ago, there was one species of right whale on the planet, but as land masses moved around and oceans became separated, um, the species got separated. And today we have essentially two main distinct populations. We have the North Atlantic right whale and the Southern right whale, and both were hunted to the brink of extinction by the early whalers many years ago. But after the whaling stopped here in North America, the Southern right whales rebounded better and throughout the world in places like Patagonia or South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Are the other species, are they stronger now? Is there reason for optimism that we can do something here to help in that uh, regard? Yeah, well, you, you 
point out something really important there, Paul, and that is that it's a double-edged sword in terms of the answer to that question. It's many whale populations have rebounded since, you know, industrialized whaling stopped mostly. There's still whaling nations, of course. But that being said, the bigger problem is are, are these other anthropogenic stresses, you know. In the last 60 years, we have removed 90% of the big fish in the ocean. We are dumping 18 billion pounds of plastic into the ocean every single year. We've lost half the world's coral reefs. The ocean is the greatest carbon sink on our planet. It takes in more carbon, gives us back more oxygen. Every other breath that a human being takes, no matter where you live, comes from the ocean. And yet the ocean's chemistry is saturated. We have dumped so much carbon into the atmosphere that its chemistry is changing and becoming acidic. So the, the bigger problem for the ocean and ultimately for ourselves is all of, are all of those stresses that we are doing. So Secrets of the Whales, to me, is a way that is, is without overtly being any bad news or conservation message, it, it can yet have a very important message by celebrating these societies in the sea, by understanding the culture, the, the emotion that these animals exhibit and have, maybe we see the ocean and our planet through another lens, through the lens of culture and family, and maybe we don't forget that and want to be better stewards of the planet as a result. I mean, hopefully that will happen sooner than later, that we look at all beings being integrated with each one of us, and we look at whales, we look at ourselves as human beings, every creature, that we're all in this together, so to speak. I don't know whether that's going to happen in the next uh, 10 years, I doubt it, but certainly before 5,000 years from now, I do believe that Brian's vision will someday come to fruition. So my thanks to Brian Scarry, author of Secrets of the Whales, available on all of the major book outlets, including Amazon. Also, don't miss the four-part Disney series from which this book is based on. This is directed by James Cameron and narrated by Sigourney Weaver. And so for the first time in this series, evidence will be revealed that beluga whales give themselves names. And another first among many, 30,000 humpbacks can be seen charging down the coast of Australia. Pretty amazing. i got to be honest with you. I didn't even think there were 30,000 humpback whales left in the whole world. So that's good to hear. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. The following is an encore presentation of Voices of Experience from May 18th of 2021. And also don't forget, Voices of Experience will be expanding in an hour beginning in October. The show will broadcast on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW 1150 at 3 p.m. on Wednesdays and then repeated on Kixie AM 880 on Sundays at 11 a.m. I would like to welcome to the show Stuart Elway, and uh, he is going to be talking about the latest cross-cut Elway poll, basically looking at citizens in the state of Washington and their attitudes towards the pandemic. So let's just get right into the interview. Is there anything in this poll that you've looked at from 
prior to that jumped out at you that's different either in the pandemic or anything that you just kind of went, wow, this is different? Uh, there wasn't anything startling that that popped out. I mean, it's what's clear is uh, people are having uh, uh, some pandemic fatigue, understandably. You know, they're ready for this to be over. Still cautious. And from what I read, it's still kind of split down party lines. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, it, like, you know, by now we're used to everything being polarized by party, but, you know, a global pandemic, come on. Um, you wouldn't think that something like this would be uh, as partisan as as it is. There are, there are some real significant differences between Republicans and Democrats in this poll. We talked about this earlier, but I think it, it bears repeating, but having something like this on a national scale is a domestic war in the sense that we go back to World War II, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, and if half the people or a significant part of the population didn't believe this happened, I wonder what our war effort would have been like. Yeah, it wouldn't have been uh, nearly as mobilized. I mean, we do, you do think about that, about how the idea that uh, the whole country really came together in those days and and um, mobilized for the war effort and people were, uh, uh, you know, saving gum wrappers and growing victory gardens and all those things. They don't believe the science. And certainly social media and, let's say, looking at the black and white film in Pearl Harbor, there's a high number of people who would, like 30%, believe that this film is faked. It didn't happen. Uh, well, you mentioned the, you know, the media environment is so different uh, today. And staying on your Pearl Harbor example, there wasn't even television. So uh, it was a radio report and a speech by the president. And then some newsreels later, you got to see the pictures. But that was, that was, you know, days or week after the fact before the, anybody could see pictures. Uh, even that, but but now it's all instant. And not only that, but everybody has a camera now, and everybody has a platform now. And so there's that. But then you have networks, both online and and cable networks, that continue to offer their view that well, this is all this is all questionable. Well, it just seems like the communication process just keeps going downhill all the time. And the difference I've just seen much more recently and have been thinking and coming to grips with some, and this was in the last six months, that people really don't care about the lies at all they'll throw out there. It just doesn't have the ramifications it has, and it gets classified in some social media platform. And if it's confusing, it works. And, and there's no fear anymore of being caught in that lie. We hear a lot about how politics have become tribalized. And there's been quite a lot of study on what they call negative party identification. That is, I may or may not be a Republican, but I'm sure as hell not a Democrat uh, and vice versa. I'm in my tribe and I believe uh, what my tribe believes. And if anything, it, whatever the, the liberals are for, I'm against it. Or whatever the on the other side, if the conservatives are for it, then I'm I'm against it. Um, and so we're, we're there's there more uh, uh, tendency to define ourselves 
politically by what we're not. And one of the, I mean, I'm saying when Trump was first running, we were doing polls, not on him necessarily, but the, but uh, finding that, that people really thought that we're calling it political correctness in those days was um, really detrimental to free speech and it inhibits people and all of that. And I was thinking that and, and looking at, at the data then and saying it's not the economy that is electing Trump. It's this idea of of uh, political correctness and this idea of now now we're calling it cancel culture. I mean, all, all of those are labels that are exaggerate what's really happening. But a lot of the core Trump voters like about him best is he sticks it to the liberals. He says he they like the idea that he he is outrageous and speaks plainly and kicks the liberals in the shins because they feel disrespected by the liberal elite who want to police my behavior. And now even my, I can't even use certain words. I can't, uh, you know, they want to police my language as well. I think that really summed it up a lot of what's happened with the country and that it's uh, he, he's, you know, maybe a little crude or whatever, but he's crude. He's my boy. And I, he's, you know, going after the, uh, liberals and we've been feeling this way for a long time and he's speaking for us yeah well it's going to continue i'm sure for quite a while and where it will end up nobody knows but um you had your recent poll in the state of washington the crosscut elway poll and again you had nine questions and uh, we're talking back to the pandemic now and that is looking at what people's behavior is going to be going forward from sports events to travel and um, use of public transportation. I think there were some things in here that if I'm in this field or let's say I'm in transportation, I'm going, uh-oh. And if I'm oh, yeah. in the travel business, airplanes, I'm going, uh-oh. And But maybe is shopping, not so much. So anyhow, let's uh, take a look at some of those. Attending a sporting event or concert, I saw a combined that don't know 25%. Uh, that's quite high going that's forward. quite high so yeah you're you're right if you're in that business that you're going to be nervous i remember about a year ago when this was first starting you and i talked and we were talking about how many people were working at home and we got to, uh, talking about well if if all those people work at home and find out that they kind of like that and that it works well for them and pretty soon office managers figure out they don't need all this office space. So that starts to dwindle. And then the coffee shop down on the corner goes out of business because nobody's coming in the office anymore. And it has this ripple effect through downtowns. And, and here we are a year later and we're seeing that. And people are having that kind of conversation and, and planning now. And so public transportation, as you mentioned, we had a large number of people who typically would use, this, this is a percentage of people who use public transportation. And we had four in 10 of them say they might never use it again, or they didn't know. Looks like the department stores are going to do okay, the malls. I think people are I think they're eager, eager to get back to some semblance of 
life before the pandemic, going to a, a concert or a ball game. But that's another one where about a third said, they, you know, I don't know. Look at the one that you had about uh, stop working from home. I thought that uh, that surprised me a little bit because it said combined 64% of the people are at some point anxious to get back to the office. I thought it would be lower. And my question would be, maybe this be in the next poll or any reading on this, is that they haven't been in the office for a long time and they get into the commute and they do it for a week and going, oh, gosh, well, I can't yeah, handle this. And we didn't, well, you know, we, the, the question wasn't detailed enough to know, do you want to go back to the office five days a week, nine to five? People miss the camaraderie of other employees and, and miss the, the creativity. Zoom just doesn't work the same way as a chance encounter, you know, at the water cooler or the lunchroom or something like that. So I think people do miss that. Another part of your poll that shows, again, a great divide on people who are vaccinated and those who are not in what the Republicans reported that half of them won't get vaccinated. That's a concern, I guess, if you are pro-vaccine, and certainly I am. Well, yeah, and, and if you believe that we need to hit a certain level to get herd immunity, which is really what's going to get us past this. Right. Uh, if we need a certain percentage of the population to either get vaccinated or, or get COVID and recover or whatever to be immune from it, that's going to inhibit that. We're going to get sort of close to the finish line, but we, maybe we don't get over it. And then what? Well, let's get to the biggest one of all. We know that this is going to have the huge impact on our society going forward, that anything we've talked up till this point is minor. And that is, will we shake hands again? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's in doubt. We had uh, four in 10 people say that they maybe they would maybe never shake hands again or they don't know when they might shake hands again. There was a big difference between Republicans and Democrats. Shocking. I I am just absolutely stunned. I know. My salute to the healthcare workers, the, the frontline people day in and day out. Talk about an award, a grand award is to each and every one of them. It is pretty uh, remarkable and, and laudable, the, the work you see those folks doing day after day. My thanks to Stuart Elway, who has been analyzing public opinion since 1975. Sometime in the future, I want to talk to him about, let's say, taking polls in 1975 as opposed to today. Not only the techniques are vastly different, because most of it was done by phone then, and of course, that's changed significantly But how people answer questions uh, today as opposed to, let's say, 1975, I think it would be interesting. He's been directing research projects across the country for businesses, corporations, public agencies. You can just Google Crosscut Poll to find a pathway into all of the Crosscut Elway polls dating back a couple of years ago, including this one. that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. Any comments about today's show or what you heard today, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166 and leave your comments about uh, anything, again, we talked about today. Just keep your comments short and I will get them on the air if you would like me to. Just let me know. 
That number again is 425-653-1166. Now, uh, what is Voices of Experience about? Well, we talk about uh, people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, and with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. And what drives this show? My belief is that experience is our best coach. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Thanks for listening. Quote of the week. I fear the day that technology will surpass our human interaction. The world will have a generation of idiots. Albert Einstein.